This is the 343 Podcast. I'm your host, John Pronich. Welcome to the show. Brian Dunseth and I jumped on the phone to record a conversation that neither of us really prepared for. And that's actually a weird yet effective tactic that I've been using with some podcast guests recently. Kind of blew up in my face when I interviewed Robert Palmer, but in some instances, it's actually worked perfectly. And in the past, I used to send people like a standard list of questions, but I got so tired of asking those. They started to feel robotic, and even though I tried my best to disguise it, I just didn't enjoy that type of interview anymore. And I was also, and I've been like this for a while, super jealous of the Joe Rogan style of interviewing that was more like a conversation. And Joe has absolutely mastered it. And I find myself in awe so many times when I'm listening to him. And it's actually funny. I have an episode paused. It's on my TV right now with, uh, with Joe Rogan. Um, but uh, I decided that I wanted to try to do that style of interview more often. And for the most part, I've been super happy with the results. But one thing I've noticed over the course of doing that type of interview and just doing this show in general is that Joe has the luxury and access to a laundry list of guests that absolutely do not give a damn what they say, how they say it, or who hears it. And unfortunately for me and for you as a listener, people in the soccer world are usually a little more guarded, a little more is understatement. They are a lot more guarded with what they say and how they say it because they are afraid of who might hear it. Jobs are at risk, access is on the line, and people's livelihoods are at stake when they are talking to media or talking in the public. And that is why I always ask one last question before I start recording with anybody that comes on the show. I always ask, is anything off limits? Now, to be fair to my previous guests, hardly any have set any heavy restrictions or asked me to delete some from the show or make edits. And there are several guests who I've interviewed previously who even insisted on taking the gloves off. And if you want an episode that is a good example of that, I suggest listening to the Rocco Camiso episode. But there are many, 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 many people who have straight up denied or ignored invitations to come on the show because of the implications uh, that could follow. And I am super thankful that Brian Dunseth falls in the doesn't give a damn category. And so what you are about to hear is part one of our conversations. And at this point, what you're about to hear, we had maybe been talking for 30 seconds, a minute. I, I, I can't really remember how, how long we had talked, but we had never, ever spoken to each other before. And we had actually only exchanged just a few uh, direct messages on Twitter. And at first, I got the feeling that Brian wanted to kind of feel things out and maybe he was a little bit unsure of what I would ask or what topics I would bring up. And I had a similar experience, I think, when I interviewed Taylor Twelman. And Taylor, at the end of the interview, was like, wow, I didn't expect to talk about any of that stuff. So it, it's kind of like a weird, like, I don't know, when two boxers get in the ring and they got to kind of like, you know, throw a couple soft jabs or I don't know, I'm not a boxing expert. What am I even trying to say? But after a few questions, Brian started to open up. And after about 30 minutes... I felt that he and I could go much, much deeper into certain topics. 
but I knew that he was pressed for time. So for my last question, I asked him if he would be down to come back on the show. And he immediately agreed, and we set up a time to record again the next day. So this episode is the first of a few conversations I had with Brian, and I'm actually super stoked that I went for that unprepared style of interview with Brian because over the course of a few phone calls, we got into some topics that most people, especially in American soccer, would completely ignore. And some of those stories that he's going to tell is about how uh, Sunil Galati was in his living room and trying to talk him out of playing college soccer. And he also told his story or told a story about Alexi Lawless informing him that he would be getting his final paycheck from the LA Galaxy. And he talked about the struggles that come with having to adjust to normal life after finishing a playing career. I've always enjoyed the conversations that I've had with former pros because I love exploring the ins and outs of their situations and how they have navigated the system. Thankfully, Brian doesn't hold back, and I think you are going to enjoy what you hear in these conversations with Brian. I also want to believe that he really enjoyed getting a chance to talk about some of this stuff with me. Stuff that gets overlooked, stuff that gets ignored, and stuff that ex-players bury deep down inside of themselves. So be on the lookout for more episodes with Brian, but this episode will set the stage and give you a good idea of what went into the making of Brian Dunseth. And just a reminder that this episode and all of the episodes of the 343 podcast are brought to you by the 343 Coaching Education Program. That is what helps fund this podcast. If you are a member of the Coaching Education Program, not only are you getting an education that transforms you into a far better coach, but you are also helping to sustain and develop this podcast. If you are not a member and you're wondering what a 343 membership can offer you, It is the complete online resource that will help you reduce your trial and error time and help you get right to the work that matters. You learn the cutting edge training techniques that have been proven to develop better and smarter players, better and smarter teams, and better and smarter coaches. The 343 Coaching Education Program gives you insider access to exclusive videos of training sessions and full games with additional education from eBooks, audio interviews, question and answer sessions, and online forums for networking and collaboration with other coaching members. To learn more and to explore all of the benefits of being a 343 Coaching Education member and to help support this podcast, you can visit 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 3, 4, and 3, coaching, all spelled out, dot com. All right, let's get into today's episode with Brian Dunseth. We're recording, so don't say anything you don't want to say. <laughs> uh, all right, cool. So we just uh, we just chatted a little bit about you know what I kind of wanted to talk about through through this interview, and I'll, I'll just say it again on on record now, so that way people understand why we're going to talk about some of this stuff. But you have you have an interesting um, player history or player past that kind of weaves into the history of three four three. Actually, so you grew up in in Upland, you ended up going to college at Cal State Fullerton, and yeah. you were actually there at the same time that the founder of 343 was there, and that that to me, I, I didn't realize that, but I know the Gary's talked openly about, you know, he, he thought about playing at Cal State Fullerton, he thought about walking on, I think he might have even tried at one point and, and got turned down, so it's just kind of like an interesting little little tie to 
to our company specifically. But then after that, you kind of you moved on and, and you had a you had a you know professional career, a little bit of time with I think the youth national team. So I I kind of wanted to get your perspective of your of your own journey navigating through yeah. the u.s soccer uh you know the the paths that were available back then because i think the paths are a lot different now and and i yeah. know that you guys that that grew up in the in the 90s and 2000s you know navigating that that path it's a it's you guys always have an interesting perspective so can can we can we backtrack to like the the very beginning of you know how you even got introduced to soccer and how it was how it became to be such a big part of your life yeah so growing up in southern california i grew up in a city called upland uh kind of rancho Cucamonga, claremont pomona ontario that whole area right off of uh, euclid and the 10 freeway back when the 210 didn't even exist yet outside of uh connecting to the 57 freeway um and it just started playing you know aso and upland um and then it wasn't until i joined upland celtic um, that my my kind of trajectory towards the game changed um, dramatically. Uh, I, I joined Upland Celtic, and at the time, uh, there was this American coach with this Dutch heritage um, that started coaching us, and his name was Clay Coyman. Um, and for those that don't know Clay, Clay was the starting right back against Switzerland uh, in Detroit for the U.S. men's national team for the very first game of the 1994 World Cup for the U.S. and had a, a really interesting playing career from Cal Heat in Southern California and the semi-pro um, kind of pathway to playing for the LA Lasers indoor side. Um, and that's when he started coaching us is, and we would go and watch indoor soccer and watch, la- you know, LA Lasers take on, you know, Dallas or Wichita and all that. So that became fascinating. And then Clay, after a few years left and, and went down to Juarez Cobras in Mexico and then became uh, the first captain, first American captain down in Mexico for Cruz Azul. And so, you know, following his his career path, um, you know, all I wanted to do was was be like Clay. And uh, our team was was a pretty good team, uh, you know, good enough to be invited to a couple tournaments uh, over in Europe. And because of Clay's heritage, you know, we went we went to London, uh, we went to Holland, we went to Denmark, and we played in the Brandy Cup. Um, and after that, Clay left and, and went on to his professional career down in Mexico. But during that path, you know, during that timeline, um, it just something stuck. His, his, his passion for the game, the, the way that he talked about it, the way that he was highly encouraging of trying to figure out ways, you know, with the old television and the bunny ears and, and the tinfoil <laughs> of trying to get as many games on as possible, whether it was watching, you know, the Bundesliga highlight show, whether that was, you know, watching Serie A with uh, our Italian coaches or whether that was falling in love with Manchester United and, and back in the day, you know, Steve Bruce and Carol Poborski and, and um, you know, MC and, and Roy Keane and, you know, watching all of that in real time when, when the game wasn't readily available. Um, so my path, you know, getting into high school became kind of interesting because at Upland High School, when we were in junior high, uh, there, was a, there was a big, like, kind of drug bust at the time. And this was at the height of a lot of the, you know, the gang issues that were happening in Southern California. And um, my, my grandfather was, I was very fortunate that he kind of steered me towards Damien High School, an all-boys Catholic school. And I was fortunate enough to, to kind of go there. And through my four years, of, uh, it felt like I was pretty successful. And, you know, you get accol- accolades and awards and all that stuff. But I, I, I got to the point where college was what I wanted to be a part of and I wanted to continue to play. But 
I wasn't being actively scouted and recruited. Um, so because Al Mystery at the time, the Cal State Fullerton head coach who coached at Damien, um, I, I was was offered an opportunity, not as a walk-on, uh, but most definitely not as a scholarship player. In the first year, I was supposed to redshirt um, and a few games into the season, end up um, getting a, an opportunity playing next to Damian Brown, who's now the women's coach at Cal State Fullerton and, um, you know, played for basically three semesters at Cal State Fullerton. Uh, and at the time, a guy named Joey DiGiamarino was on our team from Corona. And Joey was already involved in the under-20 national team, one hell of a left foot, fantastic pace, uh, really dynamic, wide left player. And uh, my second year, my sophomore year, um, I was at the UCLA tournament, and Glenn Myernick at the time was uh, about to leave Bruce Arena's Olympic team assistant job and take over the Colorado Rapids, and he was there watching Taj Jenkins, and Taj Jenkins was playing the next game, and Somehow in my game as a center back, I scored, a, I think I scored a goal and had two assists or I scored two goals and had an assist. And um, at that time, still no scholarship. They paid for my books. I got food and that was it. Um, so I was working in the mornings, playing, you know, going to school in the afternoon, sorry, going to school in the mornings, working in the afternoons and then going to training um, and trying to figure out the financials of all of this, keeping myself eligible. And that's when I got called into the under 20s, um, was invited to. Chula Vista with the under 20 national team at the Olympic training center, um, with Jay Hoffman was the coach. And at the time we had already, the team had already qualified. We we're going to Malaysia for the under 20 world cup. And, um, I think in about two weeks, I was fortunate enough to be invited full time. Um, so I ended up taking a waiver. I missed the spring season at Fullerton. And while I was down there, uh, a gentleman named Sunil Gulati walked in and met with us and said, Guys, and, and imagine a bunch of 20-year-olds sitting in, in a room, 19, 20-year-olds, <laughs> uh, I guess 18, 19-year-olds at the time, sitting in a room, and Sunil Gulati says, okay, um, we are starting a program at Major League Soccer called Project 40. Nike is funding it. Uh, there is an education component. And is there anyone that's interested in leaving school and joining uh, Major League <laughs> Soccer? And my hand just shot up immediately because I wasn't on scholarship. I was at Cal State Fullerton. I was in my third semester. I hadn't even um, declared a major at that point. And everybody, you know, all the guys at UCLA or Virginia or Wake Forest or Clemson, they just looked at me, North Carolina at the time, they just looked at me like I was crazy. And I was like, y'all got scholarships. <laughs> I don't have a scholarship. I'm tired of paying for school. And I get to play in MLS. Like, you know, I, I remember going to the Orange Bowl and watching New York Metro stars at LA galaxy for the very first game in 96 and going down to the polo fields in San Diego and watching, you know, the first preseason in MLS. I, I watched the first tryout at UC Irvine and that's when Brian McBride was trying out before he became the first overall pick. So that opportunity, John, there was no, there was no hesitation whatsoever. Um, and so I remember it was, uh, it was Sunil Gulati. Uh, it was Ivan Gazidis who's now at Arsenal. Um, it was Tim Hankinson and it was, oh my gosh, who am I missing? There was one other guy from MLS for in my parents' living room, trying to convince my parents that I should leave college for, uh, $24,000 a year. And, uh, uh, they would, if I signed up for college classes, uh, MLS and Nike would pay for my classes. Uh, Todd Durbin, Todd Durbin. That was the fourth person, uh, in the room. So, um, I looked at my parents and I just said, this is my dream. You know, it is, um, you, you get, you gotta let me take this opportunity. There's an education component along with it. Um, you know, uh, school is school. I can always go back, but 
I don't know if I'll ever have this opportunity again, whether it's, you know, form or, um, you know, being unlucky or, or injury. And so my parents said, absolutely. Um, yeah, I think a week later, I was allocated to Thomas Rongan and the New England Revolution. Uh, two weeks after that, I think we were on our, our, our plane to, uh, to Malaysia to play in the Under-20 World Cup. And uh, three days after I got back, July 4th, 1997, at the Rose Bowl, LA Galaxy, New England Revolution, 98 degrees, sang the national anthem. And I was on the bench for the very first time in Major League Soccer. So that was kind of my pathway getting into MLS. That's a that's a crazy journey that I think paints a, a pretty interesting picture that maybe started earlier than people than than people maybe understand that in 1996 1997 they were already there was already movements to kind of steer people away from college soccer and um, I, you know it, i don't i don't know if that it wasn't to steer i i, I and i'm and i'm trying to I'm trying to do it justice to kind of, of course, I guess, bring you in to understand what it, it was. It wasn't. So at the time, do you remember a guy named Carlos Parra? He was on my under 20 team. He was actually the first project 40 player to ever sign. I was the second project 40 player to ever sign. And at the time U S soccer was in the midst of a collective bargaining agreement. And um, I think it was Steve Sampson took a group of players to Chile to play um, an international friendly. And that's when the players union for U.S. soccer was in kind of a pretty big fight over a collective bargaining agreement. So it wasn't that there were scabs on this team. You know, it wasn't like the scabs were replacing the national team. It was the national team recognized that these guys were in this argument right now and they were trying to hash it out. And so they were going to take some of the younger players. Well, Carlos Parra was one of these guys who was invited by Steve Sampson. And he was actually captain that game, I believe. And afterwards, Carlos came back to camp. And he found out that he had a full ride to Maryland, but one of his classes, he had, he had failed like an English class. And so his scholarship was void for the upcoming college season Yikes. because he couldn't get his pa- his paperwork wasn't, wasn't done right um, because of that class. So that's when I think U.S. soccer looked at each other and said, okay, we have these young kids. We're capping these young kids. We can't afford to have these kids missing out for long stretches because Carlos inevitably would miss basically a full Got season it. of games. Um, so this program with Nike was created and that was kind of the first time where the college draft. And I talked about Todd Jenkins. He went number one. He was a senior in college. I think that was the origination of the idea. The very first time major league soccer started thinking along with us soccer and Nike, can we create a program that doesn't divert necessarily the focus isn't to divert players away from playing in college, but maybe it fast tracks them to the to the pro game and still compensates kind of the education component because, like we all know, uh, you know, growing up, it was you got to get your college education. That's the most important thing for your you know for your future. Um, and I think that was kind of the that was you know part of the equation that came along with it um, was if you're good enough, um, should you be forced to go through all four years of college? as opposed to if we identify you as having the ability and the talent to be pro sooner than being 24 years of age, can we start? And I think that was, um, you know, the opportunity, at least the way it was presented to me. And as I look back, that's how I kind of see that chance. Cause I know a lot of guys, I think there were 
seven of us in that first class. Um, and some guys, you know, some guys left, uh, you know, big money on or big college scholarships on the table to go pro. Um, but I think, you know, we, we were, we were the test bunnies for all of that in 1997 when it started. When you say the first class, obviously you probably remember most of those guys and, and spending time with those guys. Are you, are you still close with that first class? Um, not, not, not really. I mean, we, all of us are connected in one way or another, um, kind of like social media. Um, but as in, involved with the guys that were on the under 20 team, there's guys that I keep in touch with probably Chad McCarty, who was kind of my, on the Olympic team was my, uh, you know, my, uh, what's the right word? Uh, my roommate during all the trips, you know, a lot of those guys on the Olympic team are now involved either in coaching or, uh, general managers, uh, you know, club coaches, situations like that. So um, from that first class, I, I can't say I'm in touch with anyone on a regular basis, but, you know, we all kind of banter back and forth on social media every once in a while. Yeah, and I, I guess the, the reason for the question was, obviously you guys come into the league, it's a brand new league, but you guys are, you guys have to be the youngest players on um, oh, on, on your teams. And so that's yeah. kind of like a unique situation. And then I, I, I guess I'm curious, where specifically where your path took you, but also where their paths took them. And I'm sure you know a little bit about their journeys as well, but, but you guys all kind of had, you know, different trajectories and, and, and different paths after that. So I'm, yeah. I'm just curious how maybe I can just, I, I need to ask them specifically too, but where, where everybody ended up and, and where, where that project 40, the initial class ended yeah i guess that's yeah, the best way it, to ask it <laughs> so no no you're and so uh, i think carlos parra's uh, club you know running a club down in florida i think joey DiGiorino is now um a corrections officer down at one i want to say the norco prison i think is alaska i heard uh eric quill is highly involved i believe down in texas with uh with one of the clubs i don't know if it's dallas texans but i, I know he had a pretty big club that he was involved with um, and then a lot of guys just are, are, are not involved with the game. Um, I, I think, you know, it, it's, it's such an individual process. And a, a lot of it, what I think sometimes people fail to understand is um, in this individual process, there's a lot of luck involved. You know, you can, you can, I, you know, for my, myself, I, I bounced around and we'll get into that conversation, I bet, but I never, outside of my Olympic to coach Clive Charles and for nine months down in, in Miami with, with Ray, uh, with Ray Hudson, I never really had the, the Ziggy Schmitz or the Bruce arenas or the Bob Bradley's that were incredibly loyal to players. I never, I never really had that type of coach, uh, for more than a year in major league soccer. So, um, you know, wh whether, it, whether it's the right place, the right time, the competition and the roster spots, um, you know, the, the success or the failure of the club and the individual season, um, you know, roster turnovers uh, become, I think, um, you know, you're, you're either really lucky or you're unlucky at times. And, and I think each player has to take accountability for all of that. But uh, when it's all said and done, the hardest part, John, is, is when I, I can distinctly remember it was uh, uh, at the end of my career, Alexi Lawless was becoming the general manager of the LA Galaxy, and he was randomly my second roommate on the road. Mike Burns was my first with the New England Revolution. Alexi Lawless was my second. And uh, <laughs> we were laughing about this journey of me being a young kid joining him 
uh, on the road. And that was at the height of Alexi Lawless and the Adidas commercials and the Powerade commercials and the goatees and the, and the long red hair and him strumming his guitar in the hotel room to him and I sitting on a, on a brick wall in Hermosa Beach as he tells me um, that I've earned my last paycheck as a professional soccer player. Wow. And, you know, me then saying, well, crap, who the hell am I? Because I, I, I know who I know who I describe myself as. I, I describe myself as a guy who earns a paycheck playing soccer. And the moment that those paychecks are no longer available, now I'm just a guy who who played soccer. And who the hell am I? And that's probably one of the the hardest realization moments that, um, you know, you're, you're no longer who you think you are. So you better start from scratch. Do you think that conversation was easier or harder because it was with Alexi? Uh, it was easier because we have a personal relationship. And to this day, it's one of the reasons why, and he knows this, and I've told this story a ton of times, that I'm in this part of the media now is because I was fortunate enough to to watch him in real time navigate his own path of, of kind of superstardom off the backside of the 94 World Cup and you know through the early days of Major League Soccer. Because let's be honest, you know, outside of, of David Beckham and Landon Donovan, it's probably Alexi Lawless that really sells Major League Soccer, um, which, uh, you know, could either be a blessing or a curse, depending on what side of the fence <laughs> you sit on. Um, but, yeah, I, I would say it was it was easy because I knew the injuries that I had at the time um, were preventing me from being who I wanted to be. I knew I knew it was about that time. And at the time. Personally, my, my fiance's father was sick and our sister was sick and I just didn't want to take her away from her family anymore and kind of chase the tail of the dragon around different countries or, or different leagues and different levels of leagues. Um, so I, 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 I was kind of prepared for it, but I don't think anyone can ever truly be prepared for kind of the difficulties of what the, the realities are of real life. Um, when, quite frankly, you, you, you either get a real job, you become a soccer coach, or you just try to figure out who the hell you are on the backside, which comes with uh, a, a lot of emotional distress, I would say, um, you know, in the first couple of months. Yeah, it's interesting that you, you kind of bring that specific point up because uh, Ian Joy, who I'm sure you yeah. you know of. Um, Not him since he was 16. Yeah, yeah so he, he tweeted out something more more than a year ago i think at this point but he he was trying to collect information about players who were no longer playing and were suffering some sort of like depression, depression. Or, yeah yeah, yeah. Yep. and yeah. and i think that's a very over overlooked part of you know the the ending of a career whether you had a good or bad career a good or bad ending yeah. it's like if yeah. that, when when that day comes that you no longer step on the field your whole life changes and and not enough attention is given to that to that topic and it's i mean i'm not trying to draw the the major comparison between like you know ptsd from like a war veteran and, and a professional athlete but there are very very much so there are similarities to that where it's like you you're leaving one environment to now a completely different day-to-day -day routine and, and that comes with side effects yeah no there's no doubt about it and, and i was when 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 i knew i was done i was actually very fortunate because i I had uh, listen. I, I had a, a bunch of bad days, and even as a player, you know, I, I had you know I had dark stretches where, you know, you realize that that you are alone in this journey. Um, you know, you have your family and you have your friends and you have your relationships and your partners and and what may, you know, however you want to describe it. But you you are 
you are judged on your physical attributes, you're judged on your performance, and you're judged basically about, you know, um, when your body breaks down, can your piece of meat, can someone use you anymore? And, you know, it, it's, it gets into a really fascinating conversation about, you know, player loyalty to club and club loyalty to player. Um, and I'm of the belief there really is no loyalty. Um, there's, there's, there's a mutual respect and a mutual use of each other. Uh, but in terms of loyalty, um, I, I don't think, I don't think clubs are loyal to players. I don't think players are loyal to clubs. Um, and I think that's just the reality of professional sports, but yeah, Ian and I have had uh, a couple of conversations, um, about kind of the dark days of, of depression that comes along with, you know, trying to reestablish who you are. I mean, because we're, we're not, we're not lawyers. We're not doctors. We, we spend our lives and we hone our craft and we take care of our body, our bodies. But the moment that it's, it's done, this isn't a, a longevity job. You know, you, you can't, you can't make hundreds and hundreds of thousand dollars a year like lawyers or doctors um, because they, they've committed to their craft. You know, when we commit to our craft, we're all in, but the moment that our body breaks down, um, that's, you know, that, that's when it's, it's start all over. And, and some guys are really, really prepared for that. Others are not. Unfortunately, being up here in Salt Lake City, I was I was very, very fortunate of uh, of getting a season pass up at Brighton and snowboarding probably 60 <laughs> times during the season and redirecting kind of that that individual and collective and that soccer focus to challenging myself in a new sport um, and kind of creating a new environment for myself. I, I want to go back to something you said about loyalty because you've mentioned it a couple times now and you mentioned the names Ziggy, Bruce, and Bob. Uh, as being coaches that were loyal to their players, but you never experienced that loyalty. Do you, I I guess from an outsider looking in, those three guys are are very very highly regarded um, when it comes to players speaking about their former coaches or or their experiences with those three guys. And I'm curious what specifically about those guys made them become so loyal to their players i don't know if you have that if you have that knowledge because you you never played for them but um yeah from the outside looking in it's it's the the loyalty i i think the loyalty is based on a couple of things i think it's obviously based on performance right because you can like someone as much as you want but if they're not good enough or if they're if they're failing you in the most difficult of moments when you're relying on them um then that that idea of loyalty doesn't really stick but I think when you when you look at them in particular, the longevity is down to their 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 individual and collective success, right? So, you think about the pyramid of coaches. Let's let's just talk about you know uh, Ziggy Schmidt and Bruce Arena. You think about whether whether you like them or not. If you think they're you know they've done a good job or or a bad job, you know you go back to to Bruce and Ziggy, UVA and UCLA. You think about kind of the relationships and the careers that started underneath them at the college level. Then both had a, an extremely successful um, switch from, from NCAA to Major League Soccer. And during that time, with that success, once again, uh, breeded a, a lot of loyalty and understanding. Obviously, Bruce, uh, it always seems like, had a group of players that had played underneath him at UVA that really in the first phase of Major League Soccer followed him to D.C. United um, and then kind of... Uh, trickling into the U.S. national team when he took over. And the same could be said for, for Ziggy Schmidt, you know, being in L.A. Galaxy. It always felt like a lot of those teams were West Coast-based players that they built around. Um, and then, you know, from 
from from Bob Bradley underneath Bruce and what he did in Chicago. And, you know, uh, I remember when he took over Chivas USA and his, his first couple of signings were Jesse Marsh and Ante Razoff and Tim Regan. And, you know, it was guys that he had had underneath him and played for him and that he could trust. And he brought them in immediately. And I think that's when I'm talking about loyalty. It's it's you players, I think, recognize how fortunate they are when they've got their boat tied to a successful manager, because in that successful manager, they know they're going to get opportunities. And I guess uh, bringing it to Salt Lake City, a perfect example is a guy like Craig Weibel. We always joke, Weibel and I that he probably played six years longer because uh, Dom Tanier liked him. <laughs> he got <laughs> six years out of a career that he probably shouldn't have had. Um, so it's, you know, it's, it's, a, it's, it's, a weird, it's a weird subject. And I always felt like, for me personally, if Clive Charles would have taken the national team job off the backside of the Olympics or even before the Olympics in 2000, me being his captain and me being the guy that he relied on every single game, I maybe could have had, you know, I don't know, 30, 50 caps. But instead, you know, I found myself involved in the U.S. national team and all the camps. But unfortunately, I was never kind of I never earned that opportunity of trust from Bruce and his staff to be one of the guys that he relied on going forward. It's a it's a super interesting subject to me, and it, and it goes deeper now that some of these players are now you know their careers are over, like Ante and and Jesse and and guys like that, yeah. and 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 that kind of circle is is continuing. And now yeah. I mean Jess, Jesse and MLS, and I I want to say Ante is assistant coaching, right? Yeah, with Bob, he, he followed right. Ziggy up to Seattle and then uh, came down to LA and now did the switch. We always joke uh, Ante was the first trade between the LA Galaxy and LAFC. <laughs> <laughs> nice uh but yeah it's just interesting to kind of see those guys and, and their paths continuing because of you know that that tight-knit circle that has been formed and and ironed out over you know two decades now maybe maybe yeah, longer and I, yeah and i would say probably inspired too right i mean i think that you know let, let's use jesse marsh as an example you know he and bob at princeton uh at dc follows bob to chicago um, you know, was never the greatest player, but filled a role, you know, uh, that, that Bob needed, whether that was starting next to Chris Armas or, or coming off the bench. And then at Chivas USA, it become, came really a focal point in that midfield uh, as Bob built out or, or Ramon Ramirez, um, you know, uh, uh, Claudio um, Suarez in the back. Um, you know, it, it, was, uh, it, it was kind of an interesting time. And I think the transition period of ex-players then are, if that relationship is tight as player and coach, um, if that player has ambition to step into the coaching realm, is there an opportunity to kind of be a part of the staff? And, you know, Jesse follows Bob from Chivas USA to the U.S. men's national team as an assistant coach and then, you know, gets his feet wet with Montreal and fails fails pretty roughly, um, you know, with with a with a, an interesting owner up in, my, in Montreal and then somehow kind of slides his way into the New York Red Bulls when um, Ollie Curtis takes over and Mike Pecky is unceremoniously dropped. So it's, yeah, it, it, it is a weird um, incestual kind of pool. I, I don't know if that's the right word, but, you know, it's so intertwined with so many early MLS kind of Dick Buckus type of players that were building blocks of this league that decided to stay and kind of, you know, towed the line and hitched their boat to guys that were incredibly successful. And now we're kind of seeing that trickle effect all the way down from a Josh Wolf to a Benny Olsen to a Greg Burhalter. Um, you know, there's a, 
it, it's it's been a lot of guys that have played in MLS that have now become coaches and getting their chances uh, to lead specific MLS clubs. And it, it makes it makes sense to me to see that progression for a lot of the ex players becoming you know coaches, administrators, things like that. It, it makes sense to me, but it also makes it kind of difficult as you know somebody that didn't play in MLS and hasn't been part of that circle to yeah. to break to break in. And I I actually was fortunate to have coffee with with Bob Bradley uh, late in 2017, and I I started to to kind of tell him that, and we had a a pretty good conversation about the fact that it's hard for an outsider to break into this circle right now. Yeah. It's, it's extremely hard. And so when, uh, when people kind of get frustrated with this, you know, MLS crowd and this kind of revolving door of, of MLS people, it, it, in large part, I think it has a lot to do with people being frustrated that they can't get in. And I, I put myself in yeah. that category too. So. Yeah, no, you're right. And I think, you know, we, we saw, and, and I give, uh, by the way, how intelligent is Bob in that conversation? Um, I can only imagine. I wish I could be on a fly on the wall and kind of hear you guys talk because I think, you know, Bob, uh, he, he gets a lot of stick and I understand why, because he's kind of got that, that surly presence at times. Um, but he, he is a fascinating, fascinating man to kind of sit down one-on-one and talk. And I was, I was really happy to see Mark Dos Santos get his opportunity with LAFC and being a Me part too. of the coaching staff as a guy who's had an incredible amount of success at the lower levels. Yeah, that was, that was a super interesting hire for me. And uh, like, yeah, I, I was just, I was surprised number one, but, but super happy about it. Super happy. Yeah. Um, I know, I know you're pressed on time. So uh, I, I'm, I'm going to kind of end this with an invitation to come back on the show because I feel like we got into so many spots where we could have gone, you know, 10, 15 minutes more with each topic. Um, so may, maybe in the future we can get you back on. Yeah. Well, how about, how about this? Um, let's do it again tomorrow. You want, I'm down. I, I got, I got time tomorrow. Can you, uh, can you do it maybe around 10, uh, I don't know about nine, nine fifteen mountain time tomorrow. We can continue the conversation, go a little bit longer. So nine fifteen, your time would be eight fifteen. my time. Yeah, that works. Okay. Perfect. Yeah, let's do this again tomorrow, John. All right, cool, man. Cool. All right, we'll talk to you uh, then. Yeah, thanks for reaching out, dude. I'm I'm excited to continue the conversation. Yeah, I appreciate it. I like the direction we're going. Yeah, no problem. All right, later. All right, talk to you. Thank you for listening to another episode of the 343 Podcast. Thank you to Brian Dunseth for coming on the show. And be on the lookout for more conversations with Brian Dunseth. You can find all of those episodes and all the episodes of this podcast on 343coaching.com. And while you're there, make sure you check out all of the benefits of becoming a 343 Coaching Education member. Because that program is what helps fund this podcast. And here is a little snippet from my interview with Tom Beyer, where he talks about his experience of taking one of our courses. And I can tell you, after someone who's done a lot of coaches' education, both as a student as an instructor, that you will learn more by watching one or two of their videos that you might learn on any full-time course. Because the, the one thing that I like about what you're presenting is, again, it's simplicity, man. It's very simple. It's not a lot of, you know, complicated words. It makes sense. 
and it goes right directly to the heart of, of, of the game on, on, on how to how to develop um, not just you know individual players but develop teams as well. You can learn more about that course that Tom took and everything that we offer by checking out 343coaching.com. That's the numbers 34 and 3, coaching, all spelled out, .com. All right, that's it for this episode. We will catch you guys next time here on the 343 Podcast. Thank you for listening. Thank you for listening.